The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Well, if you're new with us or you haven't been with us in quite some time, uh, we're going through uh, the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we tend to think that it's a good deal, it's a good practice uh, to not just kind of pick and choose verses out of Scripture and just talk about them, but to actually see what the big deal is, what, what those verses, if there are certain verses you really want to cover, what those look like in the entire context of the letter or the book in which it was written. And so we've started off, of course, with chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we saw in Hebrews 1 and 2 that Jesus is greater than angels. Now for us, it's like, okay, what big deal? What, what, what's the, I mean, of course he is. But listen, this book was not written to, you know, Gentile Americans. This book was written to, well, Hebrews, to Jews, people who believed that Moses uh, and, and Levi and, and, the, and the Jewish temple were the most important things ever. And what Hebrews is saying is that, no, Jesus is bigger than, better than angels. And, and that's important because angels were the mediator of the first covenant of the law of Moses. And so what chapter 1 and 2 are saying is that Jesus is actually better than the law of Moses. That, my friends, is fighting words to the people who read this the first time. Chapter 3 got into how Jesus, now being the high priest, that the Jews reading this in the first century should not follow the, the example of their forefathers, but rather they should believe in God's promise. You see, back in the, the, when they came out of Egypt and out of the slavery to Egypt, they, Israel had an opportunity to go into the promised land and rest from all their labor. But the deal was they didn't believe. They remained in unbelief. And in fact, the only sin, this is very important to understand, the only sin that Hebrews deals with is the sin of not believing in Jesus. Now, that's not to say there's not other sins out there. Of course there are. But I'm just saying in the context of Hebrews, the only sin that is dealt with is the sin of not believing in Jesus. Well, in chapter 4, we saw that we can actually rest from all of our labor, all of our work of trying to create cleanness, of trying to create closeness with the God of the universe because Jesus has actually done it for us on our behalf. And then chapter 5 and 6, Hebrews starts to kind of build to the climax of what the entire book is about, uh, how, how uh, Abraham and his descendants are actually submissive, submitted to this other guy named Melchizedek, but the writer of Hebrews can't go there immediately. He actually takes a chapter and a half kind of time out, okay? You know, like when a, a basketball game's getting out of hand, you know, not to like pull, you know, scabs off or anything, you know, but when a basketball game gets out of hand, you know, you call a timeout. You're like, we got to take a timeout here. We got to get some stuff in order before we continue this basketball game or whatever. Well, it's the same deal. They, the writer of Hebrews said, look, we can't continue. There's some stuff I want to get into, but we can't continue because you guys are dull of hearing. And so he, he gets like, he gets pretty aggressive with them. He calls them spiritual babies for believing that their behavior is what actually creates their righteousness. He's like, you guys are babies thinking that behavior is the deal, the key to righteousness. Because it's not behavior. In this new covenant, it's actually our new birth in Christ that Craig was just talking about that gives us righteousness. He said also, we looked at this last week, that they used to think 
that uh, that that because it was true in the old covenant that their behavior was at the core of the covenant. But the truth of the matter is that God's promise to Himself and His sworn oath to Himself are the core of this covenant, not us and not our behavior. And so Hebrews said last week, if you were with us, by these two unchangeable things, God's promise to himself and God's sworn oath to himself, we can actually take heart. We can actually uh, rest in this reality that nothing's going to change. This covenant's not going to change because of us. These two unchangeable things is what holds this entire covenant together. And so today, we're turning the page into chapter 7, and We're going to take, like Holly mentioned, we're going to take five weeks just to cover this one chapter. Hebrews chapter 7 is really one big thought, but I'm just simply, I apologize, but I'm just not a good enough communicator to try to communicate the whole thought in one Sunday. And so we're going to take five Sundays. I can't do it in two Sundays or three, so we're going to do it in five Sundays. And so the, the author of Hebrews really seems to be getting to the, to the point, to the climax of what he's been building for some time now. He introduces us to this guy named Melchizedek, okay? So we're going to start talking about this strange mystery man named Melchizedek. There's only two references to Melchizedek in the entirety of the Old Testament, two. But there's eight references to this guy named Melchizedek here in the book of Hebrews. So it's a big deal. Now, I want to give a fair warning uh, because in Hebrews, especially chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, we're going to look at today, particularly verses 11 and 12, it could cause us to question much of what we thought regarding how we relate to God. It's a fair warning. If you remember, we started off Hebrews uh, back in September. I said that for some of us who really embrace works-based religion, works-based uh, uh, communion with God, for those of us who embrace works-based religion, our journey through Hebrews is going to be really, really, really hard, difficult. And some, I said this, and I'm just being honest, some aren't going to make it to the end because it's just crazy what this new covenant is all about. But for others, and so many who have emailed, who have text messaged, who have Facebooked, who have come to me, you know, in private and in public, who have given up on this concept of works-based religion, works-based closeness with God, Hebrews has been and is going to continue to be more refreshing than a cold glass of ice water on a hot summer day. And that's what we're going to see more of today in Hebrews, particularly when we get to verse 11 and 12. So verses 1 through 10, if you think of it this way, kind of sets the stage for verse 11 through the end of the chapter. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and I was going to stop after verse 10, but I wanted to kind of whet the appetite for what the rest of the chapter is going to be like, so that you'll come back. (laughs) Uh, And so we're going to look at verse 11 and 12 at the end. So let's meet this mystery man, Melchizedek. Let's start in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Well, Melchizedek is the king of a city named Salem, okay? If uh, you, 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 you could see this on your own, it's, uh, Salem is the present day city, Jeru-Salem, 
You see how Salem is the last little part there of Jerusalem? Okay, uh, and I'll get to that more in a second. And you can read the details of this account in Genesis chapter 14. But basically, here's the cliff notes. All right? But don't ever trust the cliff notes. Read the novel yourself, okay? You can get in trouble because the teacher will ask you a question that happened to me. Uh, I tried to cheat with the cliff notes. It didn't work. Oh, here's what happens. Basically, other kings in the area, they march through the area, and they literally, they capture everything and everyone in the area of basically modern-day Israel. They steal all the stuff, and even, and here's where Abraham gets involved, they even kidnap Abraham's nephew named Lot, okay? So get this. Abraham, in retaliation with 318 of his fighting men, they go down and they track down the kings and all their allies, and Abraham totally wrecks their day. He kills them, he slaughters them, and then he commandeers all of their stuff as his own. And so Abraham is on his way back home from opening up this can on these kings, and he meets Melchizedek. And for some reason, we don't really know Abraham is totally impressed with this guy named Melchizedek. Imagine what Abraham looked like, okay? Imagine what he looked like. He just slaughtered entire armies and their kings with his 318, like, you know, ninja warriors or whatever they were. I envision Abraham looking like, you know, Mel Gibson back in, like, Braveheart, you know, after a fighting scene covered with other people's blood, exhausted from battle, and uh, with his posse of 318 people kind of following behind. Well, when he meets Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, you can read this in Genesis 14, he offers Abraham some bread and some wine to refresh him. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Bread and wine, the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a neat little uh, parallel there. Now, whether it's because Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High or whether it's because Melchizedek was the king of a friendly city named Salem or what, I don't know, but Abraham saw something in Melchizedek and responded with respect and reverence and worship in a certain sense. In fact, uh, this thing of giving a tenth to another king was customary in that time period of, of history to show adoration and, and worth of the other king. So get this picture, okay? I think we all are there, but let's just make sure we're here. Abraham is on his way home with wagons and donkeys full of loot. All sorts of food, armor, treasures, equipment, supplies, animals, you name it, he's got it. And he unloads 10% of it. Tithe means 10% of all of that loot right there in Melchizedek's front yard, okay? So if he had 10 wagons full of stuff, he leaves one wagon. If he has 10, you know, Chests of gold, he leaves a chest of gold. Like, you get the picture. He leaves a tenth of all of his stuff that he stole. It's a pretty crazy scene, isn't it? Well, let's continue. Melchizedek was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. Okay, so Melchizedek is Hebrew. It's a Hebrew language, uh, and it literally translates king of righteousness. Okay, so remember that whole bread and wine thing? Now his name is King of Righteousness. Sounds a lot like Jesus, who is the what? The Righteous One. And then also King of Salem, which means, or which is the King of Peace. So his name 
It literally means king of righteousness. And he's the king of a city named Salem, which I said earlier is present-day Jerusalem. And Salem, if you would want to pronounce it more accurately, would be Shalom. And that is Hebrew for peace. You see how these correlations just get thicker and thicker between Melchizedek and Jesus? Do you remember what happened, what the angel said to the uh, shepherds when Jesus, the night Jesus was born? He says, behold, in the city of David, blah, 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 right? But then he says, he will bring what? Peace on earth between God and man. So you have this king, Salem, 2,000 years before Jesus, named Melchizedek, who is very reminiscent. He's, a, he's very uh, much like, well, you know, Jesus, who had come many, many, many years later to earth. Well, what else do we know about this mystery man, Melchizedek? Look at verse 3. And we're just going to fly through this pretty quick. Without father without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now, when you go back to read Genesis 14 and this account between Melchizedek and Abraham, there's no mention of his dad, no mention of his mom, no mention of his death, his birthday, no mention of if he's a Pats fan or a Seahawks fan. There's no mention of any of that stuff back in Genesis 14. Now, that isn't to say he didn't have a mom, a dad, or whatever, a football fan. It just means that there's no known origin to this guy. He just shows up, and nobody, even the guy who writes Hebrews, knows what his origin is, where he's from, who his parents are, what his, who his kids are, etc. There's no record of his death. And because there's no record of his death in Genesis, the Melchizedek priesthood is seen to continue. And here's what Hebrews is laying down that we've got to pick up this morning. And he says it very, very plainly in that last little part, that Melchizedek is very much like, that is, he's very much a shadow, a prototype of Jesus Christ himself. Now again, we're getting into the meat and the potatoes of what Hebrews is all about. So when we look at these next couple of verses, it's really important, okay, remember like elementary school, let's put our thinking caps on, right? You know, let's have our thinking caps on, let's really pay attention, let's really dive in, because I can, I can promise you that if we miss what's going on here in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, the rest of Hebrews is going to be kind of confusing. So let's go on here to verse 4. He says, now observe how great this man, Melchizedek, how great Melchizedek was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, okay, Abraham, he's the founder of your whole Jewish religion, your patriarch, observe how great this man Melchizedek was to whom Abraham gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Okay, so there's only two references to Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament, Hebrews 7 actually covers both of those. This one right here that we're looking at, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to see in Psalms 110, the only other reference to Melchizedek being brought up by Hebrews. Now think about this. How in the world could a guy who only got two shout-outs in the entirety of the Old Testament be so great? I mean, two shout-outs. How could he be such a great man? Now, remember the custom that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. People pay tithes to kings, other kings, out of reverence and respect for them. Who paid who? Did Melchizedek pay Abraham? No. Abraham paid Melchizedek. So get this. This is so important to see. Hebrews is building the argument, not Walt, but Hebrews, that Melchizedek is greater 
than Abraham. What? Let me take a poll real quick. Here's the audience participation part of this, this morning's message. Let's take a poll real quick. Who remembers as a kid learning a song about Abraham? Anybody? Remember learning a song about Abraham? Okay, I do. How many people as a kid remember learning a song about Melchizedek? What? Nobody? Really? You guys in VBS didn't have like a song with like full with arm motions and head motions about Melchizedek? No? Nobody? Man, this is crazy. But what Hebrews is building is this argument, listen, that Melchizedek, Melchizedek with two measly references in the Old Testament is greater than Abraham? Well, that's not all Hebrews is saying. Man, this gets crazy. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And those indeed of the sons of Levi. Okay, well, now we're getting into some other people here. What's this all about? We'll come back to it. Now in the indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment or have rules in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brethren although these are descendants of Abraham. But the one whose genealogy, talking about Melchizedek, is not traced from them, Melchizedek isn't from Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Okay, let's don't lose anybody. This is too good to lose people. I know we just read those two verses and we're like, what? So who is Levi? Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham, okay? Levi and all of his male descendants, specifically from one of his descendants named Aaron, were established by God in the Mosaic law to be the priests of God, for God, for Israel. So if you were not a descendant of Levi and then a descendant of Aaron, you could not be a priest in the law. This thing of tithing was established in order to support the needs of the Levitical priests. The priests didn't own land and animals and all the stuff like everybody else from the other tribes had. They didn't own any stuff. So the way that God made sure that they were taken care of is God had a rule in the law that said a tenth of all your stuff goes to the priests to take care of them. Pretty good deal, right? Well, what Hebrews is saying is that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, though he wasn't a descendant of Levi. How do you know that Melchizedek isn't a descendant of Levi? Well, because he's the age of Levi's great-granddaddy. Can you have a son who's the age of your great-granddaddy? No, it doesn't work that way, at least not that I know of. So what's the big deal? Okay, this is like, I'm not... I'm not a a Jewish historian. What's the big deal on all this stuff? Well, check this out. Levi and the Levitical priesthood are from the descendants of Abraham. Abraham is honoring and respecting Melchizedek and his priesthood. Hebrews is saying that the Levitical priesthood, listen, is less important than the priesthood to whom Abraham paid tithes. Now that might sound, I get it, that might sound like a whatever, who cares, big deal, is this thing almost wrapped up. But listen, the entire Jewish religious system centered around the importance of the Levitical priesthood. And now all of a sudden they're reading this letter called Hebrews that's saying that their most prized, precious priesthood is 
subordinate, it's less important than this stranger, Melchizedek, with two measly Old Testament references? These are fighting words. But verse 7 makes it really clear. Without any dispute, without any dispute, the lesser, we're on into verse 7, uh, Drew, the lesser, yeah, we already, yeah, there you go. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Hebrews is saying, look, you can't get around this. You can't argue with this. The lesser is always blessed by the greater. If you remember, we don't have time to get into this, but Abraham blessed his son Isaac. The greater blessed the lesser. Isaac blessed his son Jacob. The greater blessed the lesser. On and on and on. Well, who blessed who? Did Abraham bless Melchizedek or did Melchizedek bless Abraham? Melchizedek, the greater, blessed Abraham, the lesser. Look at verse 8. In this case, that is in the case of the Levitical priesthood, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, the case of Melchizedek, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. Now Hebrews is showing that the Levitical system was flawed from the start because no matter who was the high priest, the high priest always died. Imagine, if you will, uh, seeing the very person who is your high priest, who was the one who communicated you know, to God on your behalf, uh, who was responsible for all of your communion with God. Imagine now seeing him in a pine box. Well, what about my communion with God now? I mean, the guy's dead. So what he's saying, there's a flaw in that, in, that, in that system because the priest continued to die. But Melchizedek and his priesthood is different. Hebrews is starting to draw the connection closer and closer to Jesus as being the fulfillment of this mystery man, Melchizedek. Because Jesus, what? He lives on. And, verse 9, we're almost through this, and, it's like, verse 9, if, 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 like, if those previous like three reasons aren't big enough, in case you're a little bit slow with this, in case you're not following already that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, blah, 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 all this stuff, and verse 9, so to speak, verse 9, here we go, through Abraham, oh, we're getting crazy here. This, this, is, this is absolutely crazy. Through Abraham, even Levi, Levi, the Levitical priesthood, everyone hung their hat on the Levitical priesthood. They were everything. They were the means by which they communed with God. Even Levi, who receives the tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek. What? Okay, this is a head scratcher. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek? Levi the great-grandson of Abraham paid tithes. He humbled himself and honored and revered and respected the Levitical priesthood. I mean, the, 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 the Melchizedek priesthood. How in the world is that possible? Abraham hadn't yet had Isaac. Isaac hadn't yet had Jacob. Jacob hadn't yet had Levi. How in the world could Levi, three or four generations later, have been there in Genesis 14 paying tithes to Melchizedek? Well, verse 10, for he, Levi, was still, look at this, in the loins of his father, specifically his great-grandfather, when Melchizedek met him, met Abraham. So in some sort of genetic sense, Levi, the great-grandson of Abraham, actually also paid tithes to Melchizedek since he was at the time a part 
of Abraham's future offspring. Now, I know that this line of argument seems very, very weird to us because we're Westerners. We have a very individualistic sort of thinking. But we have to remember that Jews were not Western-thinking Gentiles. They were Eastern-thinking people, Oriental-thinking people, and they think so much differently than we do in the West. But if you've read you know, uh, uh, Romans 5, Paul uses this exact same argument when he talks about how all of us have sinned and all of us are dead because all of us came from who? Adam. So Paul, in some sort of sense, saw each person that would ever live in this world already in Adam genetically in his loins. And so we all were born dead. Likewise, Paul sees everyone who has put their trust in Christ now in him. And as a result, we have participated, even though we weren't there, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Now we have life. So this is the icing on the cake, if you will. The fact that it's not just Abraham as the lesser than Melchizedek, but Levi and the entire priestly system and all those who ever paid tithes to Levi are also lesser than Melchizedek. Now it's really important so that we grasp these 10 verses of, of Hebrews 7. Because again, the rest of Hebrews chapter 7 really builds out the practical life results of Melchizedek being greater than Abraham, being greater than Levi, and oh yeah, being greater to everyone than everyone who paid tithes to Levi. Who are those people? The people reading this letter. Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater than all of them. So we're going to look at two more verses and we're going to hang this thing up. I was going to stop here at verse 10, but I wanted us to kind of get a taste of so what. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, cool stuff, verses 1 through 10 of Melchizedek being greater than Abraham, than Levi, than all the people who ever paid tithes to Levi. But who cares? What's that all about? Well, look at verse 11. And the rest of chapter 7 is like this. Now, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the Levitical priesthood, People received the law. Now, we're going to take a time out real quick. We're going to camp out for a second and make sure we understand this. This little parenthetical statement, literally, listen, can be life-changing. This parenthetical statement is clarifying for us that the, the fact that the law, listen, this is so important, the law was given to support the priesthood and not the other way around. Here in America... We, we, our government, and, and I stress the term, was set up um, to work differently. Our government was set up to where we had a constitution of we the people, and all these branches, the executive, legislative, and judicial, were set up to support the constitution. In America, the constitution is the big deal, okay? But that's not what we see going on in Israel's history. The big deal wasn't the law. The big deal was the Levitical priesthood. The law wasn't set up and then the priests were set up to support the law. The priesthood was set up, the tabernacle was set up, and then the law was set up to support the priesthood and the tabernacle. The law is certainly important, but the law is not the big deal. 
The priesthood is the big deal. So God gave Moses all the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the details about the Levitical priesthood. He gave them all that before he gave them the, him the specific details, the specific laws that we think about when we think about the Mosaic law. Once the tabernacle was built and the priests were anointed and appointed, then God from inside of the tabernacle, you can read this in Leviticus chapter one, God then gave the specific laws to Moses about sinning, Leviticus 1.1. The priesthood and the tabernacle were the big deal, not the law. So why was the law given? Listen, the law was given, uh, these rules about sinning, it was given to drive people to the priests, to drive people to the tabernacle, to drive people to the sacrificial system. You see, the priesthood and the tabernacle were a beautiful picture, a beautiful shadow of God's mercy and grace that would be realized in Jesus Christ one day. So God wanted Israel to experience his forgiveness, to experience his grace that he offered through the priests, through the temple, through the sacrifices, for they were shadows of this thing that was going to come one day where God would shower his forgiveness and mercy and grace upon the entire world in Jesus Christ. So God established these laws, animal laws. You can read all about them in Leviticus if you can't go to sleep one night. Animal laws, childbearing laws, clothing laws, housing laws, bodily discharge laws, those get crazy, blood laws, sexual laws, divination laws, disobedient laws, 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 all these laws to reveal the wickedness of their lives, listen, to drive them towards the big deal. The big deal was the priest because they were the shadow of Jesus. The big deal was the tabernacle because that was a shadow of Jesus. In the tabernacle, the priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people that broke all those 613 laws that God had established. God wanted this. God wanted Israel to know his mercy and kindness because it extends to a thousand generations. God wanted them to know how much he loved them. And so by giving these specific laws, the people were driven to the Levitical priests to experience a shadow of his grace. So we've got to see this. We've got to see this. All of these laws were given to support the ministry of the Levitical priests. The priests did not exist for the law. The law existed for the priesthood. It's kind of like a foundation of a house. If you build a foundation of the house, then you can build the house on top of it. So you got the house, the big deal, and underneath it is the foundation that supports the big deal. But the big deal is the house. Well, think about it. If the people were able to be perfected through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And we're going to get into that specifically next week. And not designated according to the order of Aaron. Aaron being a descendant of Levi. Do you see this? The Levitical priesthood, if it actually were to actually fix us, to actually perfect us, then why would Jesus need to become, why wouldn't Jesus come from that same order? Again, we'll get into that next week, but Jesus doesn't come from Levi. He comes from this order of Melchizedek. But God had changed the priesthood from the order of Levi to the order of Melchizedek. Now let's remember, the the priesthood doesn't support the law. The law supports the priesthood. So what happens when there's a change in the priesthood? You guys think about that house again. 
You got this awesome foundation for this one house, but you wipe off that house and you build a huge mansion. Will that same foundation work? No. Let's think this through because this is life-changing. If all the laws of God that he gave Moses to show people just how sinful they were and their need for forgiveness, if God gave these laws to Moses to drive them to the people to experience just a tiny taste, a small shadow, a minuscule glimpse of God's love for them, what happens when that priesthood actually changes from Levi to Melchizedek? I mean, let's think this through. If the law was given to drive people to the priests so they could, on such a, a tiny, small scale, begin to see just how loving and merciful and graceful the new priest would be when he comes, what happens when that new priest arrives? We've got to think this through. Moses' law, it was given to show the sins of the people. The people... They went, then went to the big deal, the big shadow of Jesus, the Levitical priesthood, and they learned of God's forgiveness. But there was a problem with the priesthood. It never fixed anyone. It never perfected. It never actually took away sins. What now happens when the new priest, Jesus himself, comes and establishes a whole new priesthood by which all who believe in him are now what? Perfected are now righteous, are now holy, are now blameless and spotless without any wrinkle. What happens to that old law that pointed out dirt when we now in Christ are clean, perfectly clean? What happened to that old law that pointed out how distant we are from God when now the priesthood has changed and in this new priesthood in Christ, we are perfectly close to God? What happened to the law of Moses when the Levitical priesthood that it supported no longer exists? Well, you don't have to go very far to get the answer. Verse 12. This is what happens. Verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed from Levi to Melchizedek, from the descendants of Abraham to Jesus Christ himself, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Oh, church, we're just getting to the meat and the potatoes of Hebrews. We're going to get into this more next week. Our time is out for today. But there's been a change of priesthood, and the law that supports the priesthood by necessity has changed. Now that the priesthood has changed, the law of Moses, listen, has, read Hebrews, changed. The law of Moses that was given to point out Israel's sin and death is no longer needed. Why? Because in this new priesthood of Jesus, when we believe in him, there is no more sin and death on our account between us and God. Jesus actually worked. Imagine that. The priesthood of Melchizedek with Jesus actually fixed the problem. By God's grace through faith, we are now participants of this new priesthood. Peter says this in 1 Peter, no, 2 Peter, I think, 2.9. It says this, it's on the screen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We'll wait for it on the screen. Um, no, we won't. I'll just continue. But, we are, but you are a cho- uh, chosen race, a royal priesthood. You see that? a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. I just realized that I forgot to email them my sermon. Sorry about that, guys. I don't guess I could do that right now. But Hebrews is going to get even more emphatic in this once we get into chapter 8 and 9 and 10. But the whole point of the Mosaic law was to reveal to Israel just how sinful and wicked and depraved and horrid and repulsive they were before a holy God. And God wanted that. God wanted them to go to the temple, uh, to the tabernacle, and then later the temple to catch a glimpse, glimpse of his love by covering their sins with the sacrifices. But listen, guys, we've got to understand this. The final and ultimate sacrifice has now come Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has come and has actually taken away the sin of the world so that all those who would believe in him, listen, would be clean, actually fixed. Jesus actually did what the Levitical priesthood could never do. Jesus actually fixes us. He actually cleans us of all sin. Jesus actually raises us from our spiritual death to life. When we come to Christ, we are now joined to him in perfect union with the Father forever. We have been washed, 1 Corinthians 6. We have been washed, we have been justified, we have been sanctified. No more sacrifices for sins remain. If we are in Christ, this new priesthood, our sins have been taken away. You see what Hebrews is getting at? And I know we'll get into more to this next week. There's absolutely no need, no necessity for the law of Moses anymore. Because the purpose of the law, listen, has been fulfilled in Jesus. Moses' law was given to drive people to the priests. If we are now in Christ, the new priest, we have no need to be driven to somewhere We already are. The law has changed because the priesthood has changed. Our journey marker. This is just that closing thought of what does all this kind of mean? What are we going to talk about in our community groups this week? Our journey marker is this. We relate to God on the basis of Jesus and not on the basis of Moses. So many of us in our religious thinking and our religious upbringing have have come to think that we relate to God on the basis of how well we do and don't do. But what Hebrews is shouting out is, listen, you've got to see that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, he's greater than Levi, he's greater than Aaron, and he's greater than everyone who, who ever paid tithes even to them. And now Jesus has come in the order of Melchizedek. Again, we'll get into that next week. And now Jesus has actually accomplished what the Levitical priesthood can never do. They can never make anyone perfect, but Jesus has. Jesus has. And so we now relate to God, not on the basis of Moses, not on the basis of doing or not doing. We relate to God on the basis of Jesus. And again, this might sound strange to us, but I assure you that the change of the Mosaic law, that might even seem sound almost um, blasphemous. You're talking about changing the law, Walt? No, no. Hebrews is talking about changing the law. This has been on the books since the very beginning. Do you have Acts up here? Is the Acts passage up here? I'm sorry. I, 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 I have let us down. Perfect. Okay. So this is a passage out of Acts.
6, okay? I'm going to read the first little part, and then I'm gonna, we're going to pick up on this. Okay, Acts chapter 6 and 7 is where Stephen, one of the first uh, you know, guys in the church, was stoned to death. Why, was he, why were the religious Jews so mad at him? I'm just going to read. Listen. They, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, put forth false witnesses who said, this man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against the temple and the law. Now pick up here. For we have heard him say, this Nazarene Jesus, look, will destroy this place, the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Listen, the religious Jews of the first century couldn't handle the fact that they related to Jesus on something other than Moses. The whole point of Moses' law was to send sinful Israelites to the priests so that the priest could show a shadow, a glimpse of this greater priesthood who would come and actually fix people, actually make them righteous, actually make them clean and close. This, that new priesthood has now come, and by grace through faith, we join in with it, Peter says in that passage that I read, you didn't, uh, earlier in First Peter. We, or I think it's Second Peter. We join in with it because he's actually made us perfect in Christ. Since we are now clean and close, there's no need for a law to show us how dirty and distant we are from God. When there's a change in the priesthood, by necessity, there's been a change in the law. Our band's going to come up and we're going to sing a closing song this morning that just says, before the throne. And one of the verses in this song that we're about to sing says basically, I don't remember exactly, it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within... Upward I look and see him there, the one who put an end to all my sin. Is that the right song? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Listen, God's done an amazing work. We no longer relate to God on the basis of laws and rules and regulations, Moses or whomever. We relate to God on the basis of Jesus Christ himself. Let's go ahead and stand and I'm going to pray for us. Father, We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you that we are so slow in learning, at least I am. I, like these original readers, even though I'm not Jewish, I'm definitely steeped in religion. I struggle to understand that I relate to you based on the work of Jesus and not the work of myself. So, Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see the amazing reality of this good news, that in Christ, we're actually fixed. Our core has been made righteous. Our new man is made clean and close, holy and righteous and perfect. And there needs no further law of Moses to point out how sinful we are before you because all of our sin has been removed. All of our sin has been placed on Jesus and he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Father, may we believe that this morning. May we become a body of people who actually believe this good news of what you have done for us to spread your fame, your glory, to the ends of the earth. God, this is all about you. 
It's all about what you've done. May we not question what you've done. May we believe it. Give us the faith even to believe it. If there's anyone here today who doesn't yet trust in Jesus, I pray, pray that today be their day of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.